Um, thanks, Eddie. Really, there we go. No, no worries. That's <laughs> the timing on that is invariably awkward. I uh, <laughs> uh, really, really appreciate the invitation uh, to speak to your community, Eddie, and I'm really like grateful to be here, um, and grateful to have my colleague Jeremy uh, on on with us as well. Um, so if it's okay, I'm going to dive in and uh, um, chatter for a few minutes to kind of give an overview of, of who we are and what we're doing and why. Um, and then we'll open it up for, for questions and conversation. Um, so I'll say this is a little bit of an unusual venue for, for me and us because um, most of our work uh, is we think of as sort of B to B to C. We mostly work with engaging um, civil society organizations uh, as a way of connecting with their stakeholders and members. Um, but Uriel Tzedek is a, is a close partner and um, Rabbi Yanklowitz has been my teacher and friend for 20 years. So I really wanted to take advantage of this opportunity to um, share our work directly with um, Real Aesthetics members and uh, and hopefully engage in some conversation with the folks that are on the call. So I'm going to do three things over the next few minutes. First is I'm going to talk about why American democracy matters so much to American Jews. Um, second, I'm going to talk about what we're doing about it at a more perfect union. And then third, I'm going to share um, some thoughts about what you at Real Aesthetic and, and what your members uh, can do in, in response to, to those needs. So we at A More Perfect Union start from the premise that Jews have it better in America than we've had it anywhere else in the diaspora in the last 2,000 years. Uh, this country represents the first time in history in which Jews are um, no more interlopers than anyone else. We arrived on these shores. Uh, there was no kind of ancien regime. There was no um, king or sovereign from whom we needed to beg uh, as kind of appeal to as, as supplicants or from whom we needed to beg favor. Um, and even though we've been struggling since the beginning to kind of live up to our best aspirations, when we're at our best, America elevates diversity and pluralism as intrinsic values. Uh, we are one people among many. We even have in this country the miracle of Article 6 baked right into the Constitution before the First Amendment even that says, quote, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. It's the first time in, in human history when uh, a country was founded with a principle of religious neutrality to all of the people who inhabit it. Um, that's a like a profound thing that I think we often lose sight of. So democratic norms and institutions like Article 6 and like the First Amendment make American Judaism possible. We've built in this country synagogues and community centers, social service agencies, day schools, summer camps, Jewish film festivals, vegan advocacy groups. You may have heard of some of those. Uh, arts collectives, farming communities, 12-step groups, publishing companies, the Jewish Braille Institute, like extraordinary uh, network of um, civil society organizations, I think uh, more than 7,500 Jewish nonprofits that ensure rich, vibrant, and diverse Jewish life in this country. And I think it's important to name that the democratic norms and institutions that, uh, that make that civil society possible are as important for the ultra-Orthodox Jewish right as they are for the secular Jewish left. They're as important for the Orthodox Jewish left as they are for the um, uh, secular Jewish conservatives. Like the whole, the whole community 
um, our whole community and all the things that we fight about with each other, LGBTQ rights, egalitarianism, religious freedom, Israel, religious schools, public schools, all of those things happen inside of a container, a democratic container in which we can uh, we can engage in those conflicts in relative safety and security and without fear of existential consequences. And that is sui generis. That is a thing that has never existed, that did not ever exist before uh, before these United States were established. That being said, democracy is at terrible risk in this country right now. Not um, not unique risk. We have faced serious threats to democracy before in this country. Uh, the Civil War, um, a deep flirtation with fascism in the 1930s, uh, an eruption of serious political violence in the 1960s. Those are uh, those are episodes of serious precarity that our democracy has navigated and survived in the past. But this is pretty bad. Um, we have uh, um, an experience of enforced ideological conformity happening uh, in different communities around the country, both in the form of cancel culture and in the form of book banning, right? Places where um, people are trying to enforce a kind of um, uh, groupthink around ideological questions. We have increasing levels of toxic polarization. Um, there's a study that came out in 2020 that said only 3.5% of Americans are willing to vote for someone of the opposing party to protect democracy, meaning they'd rather vote for someone from their party who threatens democracy than someone from the other party who supports it. Um, we've got a catastrophic collapse in local media. We're on track to lose about a third of the newspapers that we had in uh, in 2005 by the end of 2024. So 20 years, we're going to lose a third of our newspapers. Huge correlation between local newspapers and voting rights. So the more the if a if a community has a local newspaper, there are much people in that community are much more likely to vote. And if they don't have a newspaper, um, there's much more risk of uh, corruption in the local government. There are efforts to restrict voting rights, huge spread of mis and disinformation, um, erosion of democratic norms like forbearance and the concession uh, concession after elections are lost. And probably most concerning is an increasing willingness on, on both sides of the political spectrum to consider violence as a political tool. So these things pose real challenges for America in general, and I would say for us in particular as Jews. Authoritarianism and anti-Semitism are very old bedfellows. So what are we doing about it at a more, at a more perfect union? We're essentially doing three things. First is we're recruiting Jewish institutional partners civil society organizations, nonprofits, synagogues, day schools, Jewish summer camps, uh, JCCs, et cetera, to make concrete commitments to engage in pro-democracy activity. When we launched in 2022, we recruited 77 partners to work specifically on ensuring free and fair elections. Together, they recruited hundreds of poll workers and poll watchers. They built relationships with local election officials. And uh, by the end of 2022, uh, our partners had recruited 5% of the lawyers that work with uh, this network called the Election Official Legal Defense Network that provides pro bono legal support for election officials who are experiencing harassment and intimidation. So since then, we've expanded our focus to encompass several additional priorities. We now have three major priorities, things that we think the Jewish community is really well positioned to respond to. Um, one is civic learning, like how do we use uh, Jewish educational platforms and venues to do civics education in America? Uh, I'll give you some examples of some of the commitments that have shown up there. Um, Temple Emanuel in Dallas, which is the largest reform synagogue in Texas, uh, has adopted a commitment to give um, to give BIMA honors 
to members of its congregation who do public service. So if a congregant um, works, uh, works as a poll worker, they will get an aliyah. If a congregant uh, completes a, a service on a jury, they'll get an aliyah. If they complete a tour of military duty, they'll get an aliyah. It's a way of like educating the synagogue community about the importance of um, civic service in the, in the life of the congregation. Another example is um, the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, which is developing a course on Jewish habits of the heart in a, in a, in a democracy. So those are some examples of civic learning commitments among uh, some of our partners. We have other partners that are working on free and fair elections. That's another major priority. Congregation Oheb Shalom in Reading, Pennsylvania. Um, its commitment is to offer up its building as a polling site on election day. Um, another is uh, uh, the, the commitment that the JCRC of Greater Phoenix made um, last year. And Eddie and I were uh, able to kind of join in supporting this commitment directly. Um, the JCRC of Greater Phoenix uh, invited 40 clergy from around the Phoenix area to tour the Maricopa County Election Department uh, in December of 2023 um, as a way of learning how elections operate in Maricopa County, which is the largest um, contested county in America, um, and also a hotbed of uh, election denialism and the Stop the Steal movement. Um, and then those clergy, Jewish and non-Jewish, kind of were sent back out into their communities to serve as trusted ambassadors of confidence in elections. So we're working with uh, the JCRC in, in Greater Phoenix to help them um, kind of uh, uh, genericize or, or build a playbook out of that program so that other JCRCs can run similar programs. And then our third kind of strategic priority area is around promoting pluralism. And I, I think a great example of this work is uh, a partnership we have with Leading Edge, which does leadership training for leaders of Jewish organizations. They're developing a guide to help leaders of Jewish nonprofits navigate political polarization among their staffs. So what do you do as a Hillel executive director if you have staff who hold very different positions on Israel? Um, what do you do as a JCC executive director if you have staff who are supporting um, a Republican candidate for president and a Democratic candidate for president and bringing those politics into the workplace? So that's the first thing we do. We recruit partners to make commitments, and then we support them to succeed. The second thing we do is we're working to build a, um, a kind of a trust-based network among all of our partners across political and ideological lines, across sectoral lines, and across denominational lines. Um, we're doing that because, well, for, for a lot of reasons, actually. We're doing that, number one, because we believe in civil society. We believe in the value that nonprofit organizations play in the context of a democracy. Alexis de Tocqueville, 200 years ago, visited America, and the thing that he was probably most blown away about um, in the context of America was our our civil society. We had this whole other thing that wasn't government and wasn't business. It was nonprofits. They weren't called nonprofits at the time. They were called voluntary associations. Um, but they were like um, entities that brought um, citizens together to work on problems that they encountered in their communities. Uh, and he saw that as American democracy's greatest superpower. So we really believe in that. The second is uh, that we, we believe that um, a, that uh, a network of civil society organizations working together is one of our best backstops against democratic backsliding, right? We, we, we entrust democracy in our government. 
Um, and governments sometimes slip up or or backslide or you know flirt with authoritarianism. And when that happens, uh, civil society is the best the best remedy. It's the best uh, it's the best hedge. Um, and this is based on research going back 100 years of democracies around the world that have been um, in states of precarity. The ones that have been most able to kind of pull themselves back from the brink are the ones that have robust civil societies that are well organized and willing to, to partner with each other to protect democracy. And I'd say the third reason, the third reason we're focused on the civil society and particularly building relationships among um, civil society organizations that have political, ideological, and denominational differences is that that same research base that talks about how uh, networks of civil society organizations can help protect and prevent kind of democratic backsliding says that um, the ones that are most successful bring together people who have strong differences with each other around policies they care about. They may be pro-life and pro-choice. They may be um, isolationist and interventionist. They may be pro-welfare state and anti-tax, whatever those things are, those differences, um, combining people who have those differences but are willing to set them aside to defend democracy also turns out to be a critical success factor for civil society networks in preventing democratic backsliding. So that's an essential part of our work and I think part of the reason that uh, our partnership with the Real Aesthetic is so important. The third strategy we have is uh, is narrative change, right? It's about telling a story to the Jewish community and from the Jewish community about the role that um, faith communities in general and the Jewish community in particular can play in protecting and strengthening democracy. That's not a, a story that's kind of self-evident to people. Um, it's one that people need to be reminded of. And we're doing our best to kind of highlight the work that our partners are doing in a way that can um, reinforce that message and the importance of uh, of the Jewish community's work on this front. So I'm going to pivot now to like a, a, a close about about what you can do, what you members of Real Etzeta can do. Um, and I'm going to be a little disappointing at first because I'm going to say there aren't any simple solutions. Um, it has taken us uh, a couple of decades to land in the place that we are around democracy in America um, and in fact democracy globally. There's an organization called Freedom House that tracks uh, the health of democracies around the country, around the world. And uh, it's been tracking that since uh, 1950, give or take, shortly after the Second World War. And democracies were like booming. They were a really good investment between 1950 and about 2004. Starting in 2004, democracies around the world and the number of people kind of living in democracies around the world plateaued, plateaued for about four years. And starting in 2008, democracies have been in decline. Uh, you would have made good money betting against democracy since 2008. So we're we're like 16 years into a democratic decline around the world. And there isn't like a quick fix. There isn't a postcard you can send or, a, you know, a phone call you can make to stop that problem. Um, and we're in it for the long haul. And we are like... Uh, part of a network of pro-democracy organizations that know that thing and are, are like willing to put in um, time and energy in, in partnership with organizations like yours. So what can you do? I'd say the first and most important thing is to encourage the leadership at Jewish institutions that you're affiliated with to become partners of ours by making institutional commitments. Those institutional commitments, as I talked about a minute ago, have immediate benefit 
for the the kind of the democratic health and vitality of the communities in which your your institutions your organizations are embedded and they give us an opportunity to do that network building and relationship building and trust building that we believe is going to be essential to democracy's survival over the long term protecting and strengthening democracy isn't a transactional one-off thing that we can focus on only in even numbered years let alone in the 10 weeks between labor day and election day which is kind of where americans wake up and they're like oh yeah i'm in a democracy we really need a network of civil society organizations that are working on these issues day in and day out, year after year over the long term. We want to be the catalyst for that work in the Jewish community, and we need as many partners as possible to make that real. Um, we're, we're all about network effects, right? The more partners, the more partners, and those partners will matter. Regardless of how that turns out and regardless of whether you're able to get traction in your institutions, and uh, we'll work with Eddie to share information with all of you uh, about how to do that, um, we'll also send out uh, a link to a, web, uh, a page on our website that has like specific examples that individuals can take, things that will matter just for you as an individual. Those things include volunteering to serve as a poll worker. Um, it takes, and this even every time I every time I mention this statistic, it kind of blows my mind. It takes a million people to run a federal election every two years in this country. That's like an astonishing number of people. A third of a percent of the entire U.S. population is involved in just running the election. So uh, we'll share this. Uh, oh, Jeremy just shared this link in the chat, but we'll send it in an email following up as well. Um, so volunteering to serve as a poll worker, hugely important. Second is joining Rumor Guard, which is a um, a partnership that we have uh, that that gives people gives our partners and and their members the tools to push back against mis and disinformation. Right, this is a, a a role that individuals can play. Mis and disinformation is rife in the social media sector, and luckily, people showing up in the social media sector can can push back uh, can push back against it. Third is you can sign up for a structured and supported conversation with someone from the opposing political party. We've got a partnership with Braver Angels that allows people to do that. Um, it's a way to like test your own ability to be in relationship with someone who who may oppose, like hold positions on policy issues that are in opposition to the ones you hold, but who shares an interest in like building their own skill set about how to have those conversations respectfully and with uh, you know with with civility. Um, a skill that I think we are all uh, like a muscle that we're all a little weak on and could could build our skills around. Um, the the get involved website that that Jeremy just sent around also will give you an opportunity if you're a lawyer to sign up to offer pro bono legal support for election officials who are facing harassment and intimidation. We do that work through our partnership with the Election Official Legal Defense Network. Um, you can also sign up to stay in the loop about other opportunities that we're continually surfacing for people to participate in protecting democracy. And of course, if you are so inclined, you can make a donation to help support our work. Then there's things you can do on your own. Um, you can organize a pro-democracy book group. You can volunteer on a political campaign. You can get involved in participatory budgeting if your community offers that. Um, if you have kids, you can ask the schools your kids uh, attend about how they teach civics. Answer like spoiler alert: most of them don't. Um, we've been in a generation-long decline in civics education in this country, and that's something that needs to be uh, needs to be remedied. Um, I'd say all of these things matter because civic engagement begets civic engagement. So the more you do, the more you'll do. And the more you'll be in a position to help your, your friends and, and family members and colleagues do things. So I'll close here by saying something that I say a lot. The Jewish community alone isn't going to save democracy. 
we're going to need Asian American Pacific Islanders and evangelicals and the LGBTQ community and veterans and Muslims and farmers all standing arm in arm. But we as the Jewish community have to do our part. There's a lot of work to do and it's going to take all of us. So I'll stop there and happy to answer questions. Eddie, I'm happy to happy to do whatever you want. Thank you so much. Yeah, we have we had a group of folks already uh, send us in some questions, and we're actually getting Great. some questions right now. So we'll Fantastic. go ahead and start off with those. Um, one of the very first questions we received is, "How do you battle misinformation within your own community, especially in synagogues? I feel like there's so much misinformation about voting rights happening here and now. How do we combat this?" So, um, uh, this is like there. There's a ton of research that has gone into this this particular challenge. I think signing up with Rumor Guard is a really good um, is a really good tool for for managing this. Rumor Guard both uh, like monitors the misinformation in the landscape and also provides tools to help people push back against it. Um, there's cons there's considerable research that says that uh, like relationships are the like necessary. Um, precondition for effective pushback on mis and disinformation. So leaning into trust-based relationships is like a critical piece of the a critical piece of the pie, a critical piece of the puzzle. Um, and uh, um, being yourself armed with um, uh, really good like information that you feel confident about is another critical piece of it. And I'd say um, I th again, I think the 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 research is is pretty clear on this. Um, not getting into the um the kind of back and forth uh like mudslinging of the whole thing and instead like doing a good job of like listening and trying to understand where the people who are sharing the misinformation got it from understanding how they're approaching it what their underlying biases are and appealing to those and that's like this is very very hard um and it's slow and uh it's not um we don't we don't have like perfect tools for these things yet we're we're kind of developing and learning as we go um but i'd say all of those things are tools that people can bring to bear Uh, this one's a little controversial, um, but uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and and read it. Um, yeah. One of our folks is asking, "How do you see Israel dividing the the vote within our community? Do you expect folks to show up even bigger, or do you expect folks to abstain from voting this um, this season?" Yeah. Um, look, I'll say. What am I going to say? Uh, I think I think Israel post October seventh is um, introducing. I'm not going to talk about. Uh, I'm not going to talk about what's happening in Israel and um, like the 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 dimensions of that of that conflict and and the um, the war. I think like sort of out of scope for where where we focus our attention. What I'll talk about is what I think the implications of it might be for American democracy. Um, I think one of the um, one of the features of um, pro-democracy work over the last eight or so years, last eight or 10 years, when there have been significant authoritarian threats from, um, from the Republican Party in particular, electorally, right? I think there are also, and I can enumerate a number of um, anti-democratic and illiberal threats on the left. Those things are real. But electorally, uh, the primary threats to democracy are are on the are on the political right and affiliated with the Republican Party at the moment have been for the last, I'd say, eight years. Um, I think one of the features of the political landscape over the over the last over that period of time has been that the progressive left 
and the kind of pro-democracy center have been in a marriage of convenience um, in response to those, those electoral threats on the right. Um, and for lots of totally understandable reasons, and, and I'd say like, you know, for some people on the left, on the progressive left, that's been about policy threats represented by the, the kind of Republican right. For some people in the center, that's been about threats to democratic norms and institutions. But again, both of them have been sort of focused on the threat presented by uh, um, the, the authoritarian right. Um, since October 7th, there have been real fractures that have emerged in that um, in that marriage of convenience, right? There are uh, parts of the progressive movement left who are concerned about um, the Biden administration's support for Israel. There are parts of the kind of centrist um, uh, Democratic Party that have been concerned about emergent anti-Semitism and um, anti, the, the anti-democracy of it on the progressive left and the ways in which the Democratic Party has been navigating and responding or not responding to those things. Those conflicts, those fractures, those tensions, I think represent a real challenge for um, pro-democracy, uh, for the pro-democracy community in the 2024 election. And I do not have a crystal ball about how, uh, how those things are going to play out, but those uh, those fractures are a real issue, and I think we're we're certainly attentive to them and trying to figure out how to navigate them. And we know that many of our partners in the pro democracy world are wrestling with them also. Um, so uh, that's my sort of analysis about it. It's not dispositive, but it's uh, I think it's I think it's I think it's the right thing to be paying attention to, or one of the right things to be paying attention to. Thank you so much. Um, some of our, our teens um, that have been volunteering with us, they just asked, what can teens do to get involved? Everybody shuts us down since we can't vote. <laughs> well, okay. So um, uh, I'm not going to shut you down. There are a bunch of things you can do. Um, so number one, um, there are some, uh, there are some, um, uh, I, I'm blanking on what the word is, districts, right? There are some like uh, voting districts around the country where teens post 16 can volunteer as uh, to support um, polling sites, right? They can volunteer to support early voting. They can volunteer to support elections on election day. So that's uh, that's that's um, uh, district by district, but you can certainly check into that, number one. Number two is uh, you can, uh, again, there are, this is this varies by state and by jurisdiction, um, but there are pre-registration efforts that can happen to make sure that, you know, I have this like fantasy that every Jewish 18 year old will be registered to vote when they turn 18. Um, in a lot of states, you can pre-register to vote at 17. I think in some states you can pre-register to vote at 16 so that that thing happens automatically. Um, in some states, and this annoys the heck out of me, you can't pre-register to vote until you turn, you can't register to vote until you turn 18 or maybe a month beforehand. Um, so uh, voting rates we know are uh, historically much, much lower among people in the 18 to 22 uh, age range, 18 to 24. So teens can like uh, organize themselves. They are the most credible messengers with each other to ensure that everyone, uh, all of their peers and friends are registered to vote as soon as possible. That's number two. 
Number three is there, there are lots of roles that teens can play in uh, in supporting campaigns. And here I'm not, I'm not like, I don't have a, I don't have a partisan dog in this fight at all. As I said before, civic engagement begets civic engagement. So volunteering on a political campaign is a really important and valuable way that, um, that young people can get involved in the political process and support democracy in meaningful ways. I'll give four and five and then I'm going to stop because there's a bunch of other things that will show up when they get involved. Number four is um, teens, I would say, are like <laughs> the one place where none of us should be shutting teens down is in social media misinformation and disinformation monitoring. Um, Y'all are way more native to digital spaces than I am as a as of tomorrow, 52 year old. So um, signing up with RumorGuard and uh, learning how to monitor and respond to misinformation and disinformation online is an incredible place and space for teens to be playing a role. Thank you. <laughs> um, and the last one, which I'm blanking on because I said the one thing before I said the other. I'll remember it and I'll come back to it. There's a fifth. There's a fifth thing teens can do, but I'll uh, I'll come back to it. Thank you so much. We also have another question here. Yeah. Um, this this one is another spicy question. I like, How do I we like prepare the spicy ones. I like the spicy ones. Awesome. How do we prepare to stop another January 6th? Yeah. Yeah. Um so so I, I you know, part of the reason we launched a more perfect union um is to is is both to be um, anticipatory of another potential January 6th. Of course, it won't look exactly like that. It might look like something else, but also to be well positioned to respond to it. Um, and and when I when I say that, what I mean is, you know, if if you look back after January 6th, there were different parts of the Jewish community that responded to January 6th. Um, different parts of the other faith communities that responded also. And in a lot of cases, those responses were um, predictable and therefore relatively discountable. Mm -hmm. So the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism put out a statement that most people in the reform community looked at it and they were like, yeah, go Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism. Um, I imagine, I, I don't actually, I'm not actually sure about whether this happened, but I imagine that there were Orthodox institutions also that put out statements and people in the Orthodox community who were so inclined to agree with those statements agreed with them and neither community really saw each other's stuff or uh, saw it and discounted it in some way because it was like not the thing that they would say, et cetera. Um, we're hoping that by building the cross-denominational and cross-ideological network that we're trying to build, we'll be better positioned to make statements, take positions, mobilize communities in surprising coalitions that will both shake people out of their like um, their kind of information and, and ideology silos and also push them to remember and, and be inclined to partner with people that are surprising allies. So how do we prepare to do it? We, we build relationships with people who are with whom we disagree about a lot of things that we really care about. Uh, and we are willing to set aside those differences, not, not like abandon those positions, not at all. Like I'm not advocating for anybody to abandon the positions that they care about, but be willing to partner with people with whom we disagree uh, in, in, the, in the case where democracy is threatened and be willing to stand arm in arm with them and say, you know what, I'm going to fight with this person tomorrow, but today I'm going to like go to the barricades to make sure that uh, 
that we that we have it tomorrow, right? That we have it tomorrow where we can where we can have those debates. So, to my mind, that is the the single most important thing that um, we as individuals, and particularly we as members of institutions, can do. Thank you so much, um, Aaron. This is my question. Yeah. I mean, the Jewish community, we're great at voting. We have one of the oh, highest statistics amazing. at voting. Uh, so we good. show up to the polls each and every time. So what do you foresee the Jewish community really doing? Is What is our next step to go far beyond just voting? Yeah, yeah, I think this is a great point. And, and we got, we, we, we've gotten that question like less often of late. Like it is clear, the Jewish community shows up. Like we are very, very good at our own voting. And so the question is like, what is the, you know, what's the next level of work that we can be doing? So I think number one, uh, as I've now reiterated many times is how do we as a network of civil society, society organizations, synagogues, day schools, JCCs, social service agencies, summer camps, et cetera, um, uh, like embrace a uh, like an active commitment to democracy that is not just about getting our members to vote because you know even at our best we're two percent of the population and that two percent is spread unevenly around the country. So what does it look like to be a force for democracy uh, that goes beyond what our voting is? And I'll give you a very very concrete example. Um, when, when we launched in 2022, as I mentioned, we had this network of 77 partners and we did a ton of work to protect and strengthen the, uh, to, to ensure free and fair elections. We mobilized poll workers. We got um, Jewish buildings to serve as polling sites. We built relationships with, uh, with election officials to kind of get their backs um, in the post January 6th sort of stop the steal environment. And um, we built a toolkit of ways to do that work. And, uh, at, like we were, we were successful enough, even in our tiny little way, right? 77 Jewish organizations in 16 states, but we were successful enough at testing those things out that in 2023, we partnered with two organizations much larger than ours, Protect Democracy and, uh, and Interfaith America, who have, you know, dozens of staff and represent many, many much larger constituencies. And they took the the tools that we had kind of um, uh, we had piloted that we'd used in the laboratory of the Jewish community and white labeled them. And then over the course of the last six months, they've distributed them to thousands of churches, mosques, temples, and synagogues. So those institutions can also be involved in in ensuring free and fair elections. So I think like the next step for us as a community is, yes, we vote, but there's so much more to democracy than just voting. And in fact, like getting ourselves out of the, the headspace that um, democracy only happens, again, during even numbered years between Labor Day and, and Election Day, like that's a, it's a fallacy uh, and, and a mistake and, and like provides a false sense of confidence. It's like that moment on the roller coaster when like you get past the really scary drop and you're like, oh, everything's going to be okay now. But like democracy happens all the time. Uh, it's, the, it's the work that we, it's the work that we have to do. And I remembered the thing that the, the other thing that teens can do, <laughs> um, uh, ask your schools to teach civics, right? Ask your history teacher or your principal, um, to teach civics. And if they have questions about how to do that, have them get in touch with us because we're plugged into a bunch of uh, both Jewish organizations and um, and civics education organizations that are well positioned to, to do that kind of teaching. 
Thank you. We have another question following up. Uh, yeah. Another spicy one. How do we work with uh, other coalitions who have made it unsafe for us? Some progressive civic orgs have said some horrible anti-Semitic things. Yeah. Um, this is another good spicy one and one for which I don't have a simple answer. Um, and the answer I do have is, is not only is not only not simple, it's also um I'll acknowledge that it's a little controversial. Mm. Um I think that uh we as human beings for a long time, probably forever, um, have operated with an assumption that if we expel people, they disappear. It's like a latent implicit assumption. I think it you know, it, it shows up in the Jewish community in the concepts of like karet and cherem. Like if we push those people out of the community, if we, you know, reject them, they will they will disappear. They will not be our problem anymore. In the Catholic Church, it's called excommunication. In ancient Athens, it was exile from the city state. Um, it happened to Spinoza. Um, it happens now on social media when we unfriend somebody, right? We think, okay, I've expelled them and, and they are gone. And I think that that fantasy is uh, is 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 fundamentally unsound, um, because what what actually happens, which the what the research tells us, when we expel people, when we like refuse to sit down with them, and and I'm gonna I'm going to draw a, a, um, an exception around like people who pose a, a physical threat, right, like an actual threat of physical danger. When we refuse to sit down with people, when we refuse to engage with people. Uh, they tend to find each other and radicalize. And we, when we are no longer in relationship with the people who irritate the hell out of us, scare us, threaten us, also tend to radicalize. And that radicalization, that kind of binary radicalization um, doesn't serve, doesn't like secure us the safety and security that we imagine it secures for us. So how do we work with other coalitions who have made it unsafe for us? Uh, like if if they pose a security, safety and security threat that is like physical in nature, we should not work with them. And there are like mechanisms through law enforcement, through the Anti-Defamation League, et cetera, that we should pursue in order to protect ourselves from those kinds of threats. Um, when those threats are not uh, physical, um, or or pose like that kind of safety and security threat. I think as as much as possible, and for everybody, it's a, there's a different line around this, right? I acknowledge that, and and I don't again have any um, like prescriptive test about what this should look like. Um, I think it is in our best interest to find ways to continue to engage with people, um, even when they they are. Um, when they feel like awful people who threaten some of the core values that we hold dear. Um, because I think it is only through that kind of relationship, particularly in this moment when uh, there's so many forces arrayed to try to divide us that we have um, hope to, to like grow our community through um, persuasion and trust building and relationship building. So I, I fully acknowledge that that is uh a controversial thing to say it's it is murderously hard for me to sit down in conversation with people who who believe and say things that uh 
offend me, that feel um, scary for myself, my family, my children, my community. Um, and it's like an edge that I constantly want to be pushing myself on. And following up on that, with talking about security, how do you foresee coalitions uh, embracing security and and really pushing for faith leaders to um, become poll watchers, to be, uh, be poll observers? Um, because a lot of we've been hearing a lot of people say that they have credible fear that both from the far left and from the far right um, to be able to stop people from voting. Yeah. Yeah, those are those are real concerns, and um, I'll, I'll I'll suggest a, a few different organizations that I think are well that are like tackling this problem in serious ways. So obviously, from a like hard, I'll call this hard nuts and bolts safety and security standpoint, the Jewish community is like has has made a serious investment in a partnership with this organization, the Secure Communities Network, which does a lot of consulting and support for Jewish institutions with physical infrastructure um, around how to provide security around around their work. Um, like uh, you know, the 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 concrete pylons and things like that. And that is like, God bless them, they do very important and valuable work. Um I'd say as a complement to that, um, again, the research suggests that uh, in the long run, the best source of safety and security for um, for communities and people is relationships. Um, our partners will 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 send this in the maybe Jeremy, you can make a note. We should send the um, the project over zero resource to Eddie to share with with the real estate community. Um, we've got a close partnership with an organization called Project Over Zero that uh, for a long time has been doing excellent research on um, political violence in uh, in the international context. And over the last six or eight years has been bringing that lens to bear in the United States. And their like very, very clear recommendation around how to navigate safety and security issues is to build relationships. Like if you're a synagogue and you have safety and security concerns, build relationships with other houses of worship in your community, build relationships with local law enforcement in your community, build relationships with local elected officials in your community, build relationships with the local Rotary Club or whatever else, because it's those kinds of thick institutional relationships that keep communities resilient in the face of uh, in the face of potential violence, not necessarily preventing, although that also happens, but also responding to and mitigating. And I'll give like one last example about this. I mentioned this um, congregation Oheb Shalom in uh, in Reading, Pennsylvania. That's a partner of ours and has been um, hosting a polling site in its building for for now two decades. And one of the like. I found myself incredibly moved by Rabbi Brian Michelson, who's the, the rabbi there talking about why they decided to do that um, and, and what impact it has had. He talks about how uh, they had a lot of security concerns when they opened their building to serve as a polling site about, you know, strangers, not members of the synagogue, like walking into the synagogue and uh, and voting on election day. This is back in 2002 or 2004 when they started doing it. Um, and not only were those fears um like un whatever they, they were not realized like there were not actually security concerns but um whatever vestigial anti-semitism he had he had like noticed in the community dropped precipitously because people in the community walked into the synagogue 
And and I'm not quoting him here. I'm like, I'm paraphrasing. They looked around and they're like, oh, just another church. Right? Like the the sense of um openness, the sense of, oh, I like I had all sorts of ideas about what Jews were. Um, but in fact, here I am in a Jewish building, casting my ballot as an American citizen in a Jewish institution that cares also about uh, American democracy, that also has an American flag inside of it, um, and that has uh, like welcomed us as members of this community to do this civic thing in this space. Um, he's like, it transformed the the relationship that his community had with its surrounding, uh, you know, uh, religious communities and, and other things. Um, and I think that's like a, that's a paradigmatic example of why this relationship building thing is so important across religious differences, across denominational differences inside the Jewish community and across political and ideological differences. Wow. So well said. Thank you so, so much. I know we're getting close to time and this is something we ask of, of all of our, our folks to, to close us up one, a message of hope and two being Jewish. What is a piece of Torah or Judaism that inspires you to continue this work? Yeah. Um, what's the sorts of hope? So I, you know, I'll, I'll say, I think, I think probably the thing that gives me the most hope is the fact that, uh, 125 Jewish organizations in 29 states have like saw fit to add work to their plates, right? Like I, I have many friends who are rabbis. I have many friends who run Jewish day schools and God knows they are not looking for new things to do, right? They've got the, the facilities manager just quit. They, the ECC classroom has whatever air conditioning is broken. They don't have enough chairs in the sanctuary there, whatever the capital campaign, blah, blah, blah. And in just a couple of years, um, day school heads and JCC heads and camp executive directors and so on have said, um, you know what, I've got all these things on my priority list. And this also matters because um, the survival of American democracy is a precondition for Jewish life in this country. Uh, and we're going to take that on. And that, that you know, even though there are so many things to be concerned about, it gives me an enormous amount of hope. Um, what's the Torah? You know, I, I like... I, I can cite I can cite Chazal, uh, but 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 actually I'm like I'm gonna go back to 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 like uh, a a different piece of Torah that's that's not um, that's not our scripture, but that I think is a distinct thing about the American Jewish experience. This the, like this thing is not um, that there really there really is a distinct American Judaism, and it's it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, it is an extraordinary thing. It. I, I will go American Judaism. I will go toe to toe with, you know, 15th century Spanish Judaism and 18th century Polish Judaism and fourth century Babylonian Judaism. Like we have got an amazing thing going here. Um, we have we have built a community of diversity and beauty and profound teaching and Torah, and I I I like that. That is a product of the like a syncretic merger between like 3000 years of serious Torah and 250 years of like the, the, the beauty or like our other Torah in this country, the constitution, the United States constitution, the declaration of independence and, and, you know, Frederick Douglass's what to a slave is the 4th of July and Langston Hughes, let America be America again. And, um, you know, like 
that 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 thing I, somebody needs to write it and maybe i don't know maybe rabbi yankowitz and i eddie we can like write it together like what is that what is that american jewish torah um that thing is is profound and it deserves recognition and appreciation and and defense and and continued perfecting right it is not done we adopted a mission that we need to protect and strengthen american democracy it is not like this is not about going back to some halcyon age of american judaism there's a lot of work to do to make this country the place it needs to be. Um, but democracy is our best hope to get there. And uh, we're, we're like honored to be able to do it in partnership with you. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you so much, Jeremy, and everybody who's on this call, who's watching both the recording, uh, who will be watching the recording, and those of you who are watching live. We appreciate your time. We appreciate the work of a more perfect union that's really mobilizing so many in the Jewish community to take action, to protect our democracy now more than ever, that we truly all need to come together. A huge shout out once more again to a more perfect union and the amazing work that both Aaron's doing, Jeremy, and the rest of his team, because they have such amazing human beings. Uh, make sure to stay up. We will be following up with links for those of you who are asking for them uh, to make sure that you can keep up with everything that's uh, mobilizing. And remember that everybody has an opportunity to create change. Aaron just drafted like 25 different things that all of us can do right now. So thank you so much, everybody. I hope you have an amazing week. Thank you so much for being with us. Take Thanks care. so much, Eddie. Thanks, everybody. Great to see oh, you. Bye.